Psalm 115 verse 16 tells us that the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. And we read in Psalm 19:1 that the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse shows forth his workmanship. What then is the proper way to understand the modern scientific quest to know the universe? A quest that often takes little or no account of God's glory. What about human exploration of the cosmos? Does the Bible have anything to say about it? The late planetary astronomer and popular science communicator, Dr. Carl Sagan, in his 1990 book, Pale Blue Dot, A Vision of the Human Future in Space, is reminded of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Quote, The prospect of scaling the heavens, of ascending to the sky, of altering other worlds to suit our purposes, no matter how well-intentioned we may be, sets the warning flags flying. We remember the human inclination toward overweening pride. We recall our fallibility and misjudgments when presented with powerful new technologies. We recollect the story of the Tower of Babel, a building whose top may reach unto the heaven, and God's fear about our species that now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do." End quote. God was not afraid of what man would do. God knows very well what man would do and what is in man. Rather, the object lesson in the story of the Tower of Babel was man wanting to ascend into the heavens for the purpose of making a name for himself without any reference to God and his glory. Many modern missions into the heavens likewise take little or no account of God and his glory. For the first Babylonians, the resultant neglect of God's glory led to confusion. The same might be said for the direction of secular science and the exploration of the cosmos today. Why are we doing this? Why the penchant for colonizing other planets? Why the grandiose expenditures for trying to understand the universe? What is the ultimate purpose for the exploration of the heavens? Dr. Sagan is arguably the greatest visionary of the last century regarding space exploration. He helped pioneer the Voyager 1 and 2 satellites and was integral in the Viking 2 mission to Mars, as well as played a pivotal role in crafting the 1974 Arecibo interstellar radio message beamed at the great globular cluster M13 in the constellation of Hercules. Just before his death in 1996, Sagan recorded a message to future Martian astronauts. I don't know why you're there, he says, offering several possible reasons. Maybe we're on Mars because of the magnificent science that can be done there. Maybe we're on Mars because we have to be, because there is a deep nomadic impulse built into us by the evolutionary process. We come, after all, from hunter-gatherers, and for 99% of our tenure on Earth, we've been wanderers. And the next place to wander is Mars. But whatever the reason you're on Mars is, I'm glad you're there, and I wish I was with you. In his 1980 Cosmos series, Sagan wondered aloud that if after Mars has been thoroughly explored, mapped, and colonized, quote, what then, what shall we do 
with Mars, end quote. And it's telling that in both instances, Dr. Sagan seemed to express uncertainty as to the ultimate reason for why we would go to Mars, which of course brings up the question once more that presses against every secular practitioner of the astronomic sciences. Why? What is it about the universe that draws our attention and time and resources heavenward? Why do we study the cosmos? Few secular scientists offer any deeply meaningful or cohesive answers. Cosmologist Dr. Sandra Faber of the University of California at Santa Cruz said in a 1990 interview that she believed the universe is, quote, completely pointless from a human perspective, end quote. Echoing the thoughts of the University of Texas at Austin physicist Dr. Steven Weinberg, who famously said that the universe seemed pointless to him as well. So the question remains, why dedicate one's life to the study of something that seems pointless? Is that not the epitome of confusion? Perhaps wanting to be like God, desirous of making a name for ourselves, we consider the heavens not as God's heavens, but as ours, malleable, able to be manipulated, colonized, studied, defined, and classified according to our own wisdom. But in the end, our own wisdom, apart from God, only leads to confusion. In the late 80s, a multi-million dollar biosphere project began in a remote Arizona desert, undertaken to see if a completely self-sustainable habitation could be built for human beings on another world. In short, it failed. We are a very long way from creating a self-sustaining habitation on another planet, as is often depicted in science fiction. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I discuss human exploration of the cosmos from a biblical perspective and provide some food for thought about what it will actually take for us to live on another planet. So come along and join us for this episode of Good Heavens. Wayne, it has been uh, too long. We have been uh, swirling about the galaxy doing many different things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Hi, Dan. It's a bit great to be back on Good Heavens. It we've, is. We've, we've had a while. We had a kind of flurry of programs in December, and then uh, it's been a while. Uh, we need to catch our listeners up on what, what we've been doing. We have had a lot of uh, activity. I have uh, started working. I've got a new job at Watchman Fellowship Incorporated. It is an apologetics organization located in Arlington, Texas. So I have been uh, busy doing that. A lot of good things are coming, and we have uh, something to talk about that in just a minute. And uh, you have been busy as well, so this is the first time since when? November. 
<laughs> yes. We've sat down to record something. <laughs> yeah, but you know, Dan, we've had some uh, new followers on Podbean, uh-huh. and uh, I'm really glad to see that. Uh, so we've had some real uh, good uh, uh, response from listeners over the last month. Yeah, we've been uh, building slowly over the last, since, uh, what, September of 2017. We've been uh, slowly building a small following, which is really nice, and people are supporting us and telling us how much they like the podcast. I know people on Twitter listen to what we do and uh, tell me that they like it, so I'm enjoying it. I'm surprised we've been keeping it going for two years, over two years. Yeah, and it's still growing, and uh, you know, uh, Watchman is uh, pretty happy with what we're doing, and you're going to be making some new podcasts, right? Yes, one of the exciting new pieces of news we have is that um, my new boss, James Walker, uh, the president of Watchman Fellowship, likes Good Heavens and has uh, decided to underwrite Good Heavens uh, and take it upon uh, the ministry to incorporate our podcast as part of their ministry. That's right. And uh, so we will we will be doing Good Heavens um, through Watchman Fellowship. We will have a broader podcast base. We will be on other podcast outlets. We'll still continue to be on Podbean and iTunes. And uh, if you support us on Patreon, your donations will now be going through Watchman Fellowship, but they will still be going to me. Uh, it'll still be a way in which uh, you can help me and my 100% donor-supported salary that I am uh, doing. That's the most challenging aspect of my job is raising support for it. But I enjoy the job. It's wonderful. But we will be doing uh, apologetics profile, the Apologetics Profile podcast with Watchman where we are going to be focused more on uh, podcasts about Islam, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, um, other cults and religions, and other topics on apologetics. And so Good Heavens will be mostly focused on what we have been doing over the years is uh, science and cosmology and theology. So uh, the only thing that's really going to change is that we will have a broader audience. So that's, that's exciting. Right. It's exciting. Right. So we'll be out on more platforms probably because of this as well. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So, uh, Very exciting news. We just want to encourage everybody to keep telling others about the podcast. And uh, we're, we're glad for the, the interest and response we've had. Absolutely. All right, Wayne. So today is going to be really fun. We're going to be talking about, as you know, we've actually been digging into this for the last uh, couple of months. Um, the future of human space exploration, missions into the cosmos, missions into the heavens. What, what, what's it going to take? Uh, you know, talking about the implications of it. Why do we do it? Why should we do it? Is there uh, what, what's to be gained from this? What's a what's a biblical perspective? Uh, that, what's a good biblical perspective? A good solid biblical perspective of our of our exploration of the cosmos, especially the manned missions, because they cost so much. There's so much time and material involved and right. planning and engineering. It is a huge endeavor. Of course, like President Kennedy challenged people before we went to the moon, we don't go to the moon because it's easy. We go to the moon because, because it's, it's hard. hard right? Yes, I like that. Yeah. You, you say it like he does. That's <laughs> yeah. right. uh, I've heard that several times. Of course, so, uh, he inspired the Apollo missions, um, uh, and then before the close of the of uh, the nineteen seventies, we set foot on the moon—a first, a historical first. Um, so, just briefly, though, before we before we get into the meat and potatoes of the future of space exploration, let, I, I wanted to talk about anecdotally 
some of the past, a, a few of the past things that people would probably be most familiar with were some of the milestones in the Apollo missions. Uh, first of all, that rocket, the Saturn V rocket, I didn't know this. You sent me the research, and for all my knowledge of Apollo, I had no idea how heavy the Saturn V was when it was ready to go to the moon. Oh, man. Six and a half million pounds. Yeah. 300 feet. Five, was five engines or four engines? Five, four engines. I don't remember. Four five, uh, five engines. Five engines. Uh, the, the cones of those engines are as big as a garage. Yeah. You can park a car in it. Right. Uh, I've seen the what was to be the body of Apollo 20. It's laying on its side uh, in Houston, Texas at the Johnson uh, Space Center. It is enormous. Well, <laughs> Have you ever seen a Saturn V up close? Uh, I saw the one that's down in Houston. Yeah. Okay, so it, it is incredible. Um, the thing, this thing was standing upright. The kind of thrust and fuel. At the time, you need fuel and all the equipment and, and utilities for, for the astronauts, uh, including the three astronauts. Uh, it's a remarkable achievement. Of course, Amazing, yeah. the brain behind the Saturn V was Werner von Braun, who was a Nazi rocket scientist in World War II and the designer of the V-2 rocket. Right, and I've heard that people say he wanted to go to Mars, and he built the uh, Saturn V rocket really bigger than what was necessary, hoping that they could use it to go to Mars as well. So, and so that's that's where there's a lot of interest now, Dan, is uh, sending astronauts to Mars. Yeah, so the uh, it was it was interesting because when we had Dr. Von Braun in America doing rocketry, it was a lot of it was designed for uh, intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles when we were entering into the Cold War and competing with Russia. Of course, the whole space race started in 1957 when that little metal basketball with wires sticking out of it went right. around the Earth. Sputnik. Beep, beep, beep. Beep, beep, beep. You know, in yeah. 1957, the sound, right. the sound that was heard around the world and made a generation of people memorize the quadratic equation. Yeah, the beep that changed the world. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so uh, I also, it's interesting. So what's it like to be on the top of a rocket? I have a great quote from Michael Collins. Who, uh, who was the? He was the the third astronaut on Apollo 11, uh, who did not uh, go to the moon. He was up in the bus that picked up everybody, uh, picked up Buzz and Neil. Um, but uh, Collins said at, at liftoff, it's probably one of the best descriptions of what it feels like to be in a rocket. Of course, I've never been in a rocket, but Collins says that. This beast is best felt. Shake, rattle, and roll, he says. <laughs> we are thrown left and right against our straps and spasmodic little jerks. It's steering like crazy, like a nervous lady driving a wide car down a narrow alley. Uh, and so <laughs> that's how he describes the liftoff of, of Apollo 11, the Saturn V rocket. You're sitting on top 300 feet above the ground on six hundred, uh, six and a half million pounds of material and fuel, and it's like, what's that feel like? Uh, but but that's we're going to talk about today. What? Why do we do that? Why do we build something like that? And, right. You know, I think it is it is natural, and it's usually a good thing for human beings to want a challenge to to build something that's a challenge for us. And I'm all for that. As long as we have a kind of healthy attitude about it, right? And uh, let's let's go back to uh, Genesis a little bit for for a second, yeah. a second about this. Yeah, band. we're going to talk about uh, Genesis eleven because I think there's some parallels there. 
Um, one of the things that's fascinating to me is when you talk about when we talk about uh, whether they're manned or unmanned um, projects and things that go into space. We call the what does NASA call them? The ESA, European Space Agency. We call them missions. Missions. You know, it's the same, very same concept of a missionary. Uh-huh. You go to another country to, 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 to share the glory of God, to, 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 to preach and teach the gospel to people who have never heard it. Uh-huh. Uh, that's missionary, and it's dangerous work, right? When you yes. Go, and it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of investment. It takes a lot of effort. There are some parallels. There are some parallels. And I think uh, both the missions to space, or this, I don't like calling it space anymore, but the missions to the heavens yes. and the missions to other countries both have something in common, Wayne. I think it's the glory of God. Right. I think, and so for me, like you say, I don't, I'm not opposed, we, we want to say we're not opposed we're not sitting here like condemning space exploration. We're not. We're not. No. We're not being hard on that. We're just saying that I think, for me, like Psalm one eleven two says, uh, "Great are the works of the Lord. There are they are studied by all who delight in them." Right. And the heavens declare the glory of God. And so we naturally gravitate toward wanting to explore what God has made. And from, right. a, from a biblical perspective, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. No, to explore what God created is a good thing. We just have to be. Uh, realistic about our own limitations. That's right. And what we can and can't do. Now, there's. Uh, we want to get into uh, uh, the passage we want to relate to all this is Genesis 11, right? Right. So this was the story in, in Genesis about the Tower of Babel, and they were building a large tower. And uh, so it said, uh, they said to one another, this is in Genesis 11:3, "Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly." And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. This is the city was called Babel. I like the, uh, there's a little Hebrew pun in there. And this is one of the things that I think gives scripture its authenticity. You know, if, if this was a book made up by people who wanted to, to say their God is great, this is a funny thing to put in there because it's kind of a put down on what man is doing. The yeah. Lord had to come down. The Lord came down to see the tower that, that was going up. So, in other words, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very tall. <laughs> God's had, God has to come down <laughs> to see the tower that's going up. Right. Um, but, okay, so what in the world do you think this has to do with modern uh, explorations of the universe? Today? Well, you know, uh, they didn't want to be scattered across the face of the earth, it said. 
But that's actually exactly what God wanted them to do. Right. God wanted them to be pioneers. And be and, and, and explorers. And fill the earth. Fill the earth. Subdue it and go out. So it's kind of a difference between a horizontal going out into all the earth right. versus a vertical. I want to go up and almost be like God. I want to make a name or we want to make a name for ourselves in the heavens, which I think one of at least maybe one of the sins of the people here is that they want to put their name in the heavens. But as the Bible says, Jesus is the name above all names. God is the name. Yahweh is the name above all names. And so these people wanted to glorify themselves, wanted to go into the heavens and make the heavens all about themselves, make a name for themselves, condense themselves and gather themselves in one place instead of going out and multiplying and filling the earth. Yeah, so think about the fact that if you have... What if the whole population of the world was centered around one big, massive city? That's what they wanted. Yeah, right. They wanted one city or one kingdom that would dominate the world. Right. And they would have everything they needed right there. But that's not what God wanted. God wanted them to go to the effort and trouble and and, uh, expense and risk of being pioneers and explorers. Mm -hmm. God wanted them to be explorers and explore the world. Go out and see the creation that I have made. But it's interesting, in cities now, what do we do? We gather in one place. There's millions upon millions of people packed in a small area. Right. And then what do we do when we do that? We build towers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we build towers into we the sky. We build towers, right. And, and, and it's like they blot out the light of the sky, right? So in some sense, there's little babbles everywhere uh, across yeah, our we, country. Yeah, we were talking then. That, uh, back in that area of the world, there there's very few trees. Yeah. And so what they, they their building material was... Mud. They, mud and brick. they took mud bricks and baked them. And archaeologists have actually found these mud bricks in that area. That's fascinating. And, and they, so. Um, but it's funny they, they they use. How do they make the bricks? The scripture says they burn them thoroughly. Yeah, kind of like in ceramics. You bake them. Yeah. Kill so them or whether you're a, uh, building a rocket or building a tower, you need fire. That's right. So we use today. We don't use mud bricks, but we have used a lot more fire. Uh, yes, yeah. lots of fire. Yeah, uh, different kinds of metals and materials, but no bricks. But still, so are we saying, Wayne? Are we saying that building rockets is a sin, like the sin of the Tower of Babel? Is that what we're saying? We're no, not- I just think we need to keep in mind our human limitations and fallibility, and we need to have an attitude of let's go out and explore what God made. But let's be realistic about what we can and can't do. Right. Well, uh, you know, and just to, to affirm that, that that I think manned space exploration is 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 okay is, you know, Ed White was the first American to spacewalk when he got out of the ship and right. fl- floated. He doesn't really walk. He's tethered to the ship and he he does his uh, space yeah. flight. Now Ed White died in uh, January of 1967 in the Apollo One fire. But Ed White was a Christian, uh, a devout Christian, and his his passing, he, he had a dream. One of his dreams was that if he was going to go to the moon, to take the Bible to the moon. And out of the tragedy of, of the Apollo 1 fire, uh, his pastor friend, who is uh, Reverend John Stout, started the Apollo Prayer League. And uh, it was on future subsequent Apollo missions, I think it was in the pocket of Edgar Mitchell on one of the Apollo missions, that they took a microfiche copy of the Bible to, right. to the surface of the moon. And um, Buzz Aldrin, when he landed on the moon, before he, did, before he got out, 
uh, he actually took communion. We've talked about this before. And he had in his little pocket, he had Psalm 8 and a, a verse from, uh, from John, as, uh, the verse from Jesus where he says, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you, you can, can do, do nothing. nothing yeah. And then he has Psalm 8, 3, and 4. It says, uh, when I consider thy heavens, the, the moon and the stars that you have created, the works of your fingers, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right. And so it's almost like built into the cosmos, God's glory, that causes us to want to explore that and also ask the question about who we are in the cosmos. Who are we in relation to all of this vastness? And that's what astronomers and scientists and cosmologists are still asking. The questions, the very basic questions that the universe makes us ask. What are we? Who are we? How did we get here? Why are we here? Is there a purpose for all of this? Right. So um, astronauts have been thinking about uh, their faith for years throughout the uh, years of Na- all the things NASA has done. There's some of the, those astronauts have been believers. Yeah. And we've talked about that on previous podcasts. Right. And if somebody's new, you know, we did a program on Apollo 8. Mm-hmm. We did another program on Apollo 11. Yeah. And so... Um, we talked about uh, all of that. So we so talked about the Saturn V rockets and yes, so on. Yes, we did. So we're kind well, of backtracking a little bit here. So, but. yeah. So now there's a new interest in rockets again. Yes, we are. And uh, I think that Elon Musk and the SpaceX people have generated a lot of interest about this. But NASA is also... Working on a new big rocket. And one of the new things that, that has come about is you just mentioned Elon Musk. So if you drive a Tesla, you're funding uh, new missions you're into space. You're funding missions to Mars, <laughs> possibly, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Well, and the, uh, the founder of uh, Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos, I think is how you pronounce his name, he found the, uh, a couple of the engine cones of Apollo 11. He did a sea exploration, and they dredged them up. They're in a museum somewhere now. I don't oh, know. okay. But, um, but the, the idea of a modern entrepreneurial uh, investment in space now. It's not just NASA or the European Space Agency. It's now private enterprise is now developing technologies for space exploration. And Elon Musk is now one of the leading pioneers in private enterprise space exploration. And uh, he's responsible for for what exactly now? Well, let me talk about SpaceX as I've been looking into this. Okay. So, Dan... um, we talked about the Saturn V rocket in the Apollo years, mm-hmm. big rocket. After Apollo, it's like rockets got smaller because they went to the space shuttle program instead of trying to go to Mars. Yes. Now, I think the space program was a good idea, and I think we needed experience living in space and so on like that for a while. So... I don't think at the time of the space shuttle program we were really ready to go to Mars. Some people think we should have done that back then. Yes. But what Elon Musk has done is try to develop new rocket technology that is um, less expensive than what was done with the Saturn V. So mm-hmm. the Saturn V was one use and it's gone and you can't use it again. It burns up in the atmosphere and uh, that's all there is to it but Elon Musk is developing more ways to reuse more about the rocket and uh, so he and another thing that is necessary in order to do something large in space and get a lot of supplies up in display space what you have to be able to do is 
the rocket has to be able to take off and it has to be able to land again. Yeah. It has to land itself and be reusable. And that is a huge challenge. This is a huge challenge. And this is one of the best accomplishments of SpaceX, I think, is that these, these solid boosters that are on the side of their rocket can land themselves on land. They're not disposable as Apollo. That's right. Yeah, all the, the to watch these land is really neat. It's remarkable. It's and, remarkable. Uh, so that's amazing. And they're also making it less expensive <clears throat> by this. So I think uh, isn't isn't the uh, the SpaceX vehicle? What's it called? Uh, uh, the Falcon rocket. The Falcon is uh, half the weight. Almost half the weight of the Saturn V, I understand. Well, they've had different sizes of these Falcon rockets. Okay, okay. But the big one is what they call the Falcon Heavy or the Falcon 9. And that's only, what, three and a half, I say only, three and a half million pounds. It's um, a little smaller than what the Saturn V could have done. Mm-hmm. But uh, the important thing is that the way you can reuse Reusability. it, you can put a lot of material up yeah. into space with it. And then uh, NASA is also working on something. What NASA has is two things. One is called Orion, which is a a space capsule. It's not an entire rocket. It's not the entire rocket. It's a space capsule, uh, kind of like the Apollo capsule, only a little bigger. Yeah. And then under it, uh, it mounts on to a service module that can function in space and and, and so give there are, movement so the, in space and so on. Our next, ma- other than the International Space Station, our next target, both through private industry and, and through NASA and the ESA, seems to be Mars. Well, now, Mars uh, is probably the ultimate goal for a lot of pe- people, but NASA is building this. There's, they have Orion. They're also building a new rocket to get Orion into space, which mm-hmm. is what, what they're calling the Space Launch System. Kind of a generic name, SLS. It looks kind of like the rockets you saw on the space shuttle, okay. except a little bigger. All right. To me, just looking at the pictures. And uh, so what they're planning to do with that immediately right now is to send men to uh, the moon again. And I think that's good. I think there's a lot of good things. It's good we practice. Still, well, there's still a lot of good research that could be done about yeah, the moon. We found a lot more since uh, 1969. So I'm all for that. And they probably think that getting these new rockets working uh, will prepare us for going to Mars. All right. I have. Uh, I, I tweeted this morning. I'm active on Twitter, as you know. Uh-huh. And I asked some of my Twitter family. I said, open-ended question with no agenda. I would be interested to hear responses from all sides. Given the cost, materials, planning, etc., why do, why continue to do manned missions into the heavens? And I wanted to share a couple of responses from some of my followers. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Mead says, and you can follow all of these people on Twitter. Uh, Patrick Mead says, we were created to explore our world, the next ridge, the microscope, philosophy. We are born seekers. It's what we. It's what we do. That's good. Uh, one of my friends, John's Woe, W-O-E, says, Looking at the discoveries and benefits we gain from the manned missions to the moon, I would say that the rewards of working toward a lofty goal far outweighs the costs. The mother of all invention and all. And uh, my friend Val says, Space. She's quoting something very familiar to all of us. Space, the final frontier, to <laughs> seek out new life and new civilizations, <laughs> to boldly go. 
where no man has gone before, and she put a little smiley yes, face. Uh, and then uh, right there. Uh, Danielle Eagle, she says, my reason is fruit. I believe we must listen to those who feel this urge to explore God's great and terrible creation in all of its vastness. I think that's great. Uh, and so I think a lot of us feel like this it's okay to explore. But as you say, let's have a healthy perspective of who we are. As David asks in Psalm 8, what is man in relation to all this? And how should we view ourselves as we are exploring the universe? Right. And so there's a science point of view on this that I think is an unhealthy attitude, Dan. It's the, the idea that... <clears throat> Earth will eventually not be habitable, and as humanity grows in population, the idea is that we're going to eventually kind of spoil the Earth so that we can't live on it anymore. And then then the hope is that we need to go out into space and colonize other planets so that we uh, don't die as a species. But I think that's all unrealistic. Really. It's a, it's a, it's a. I wouldn't say it's a prophecy. Of course, it's it's a prediction. Uh, it's a, it's a. Well, maybe this will happen. So maybe since we don't want that to happen, so let's uh, let's build rockets and civilizations, and well, let's try to get out and away from the planet because we're going to use it up. I mean, you know, you know, that's the mentality in our consumer culture. When we use something, what do we do? We throw it away, right? We. Well, that also, and and it's also kind of a hope in science, and in. What what is the ultimate future of mankind? Right, it, it's it's in this universe and this life, but we got to get out beyond Earth. Right, but that's not the way I think we should look at things. Our ultimate hope is not this life at all. No, it's, it's what God is going to do in the future. And I, uh, you remember, I a couple of I have a couple of podcasts ago, I interviewed uh, Carl Sagan's daughter, Sasha yeah. Sagan. It was a delightful conversation. Uh, she and her father. She was explaining to to us. Uh, about her father's view of human space exploration, right? And she shared her father's similar view, and it's it's not like it's not like the hope of immortality, but really for them it was just well, let's extend humanity's existence in the cosmos just a little longer. So, in, in a materialistic world without God, the greatest hope that we can have, I think Sasha and her father are right, is just trying to extend our existence as a species just a little longer. You know, right. we use Earth, we go to Mars, we want to just continue to live in the cosmos just a little longer. But that's right. not, that, that finally is kind of the ultimate eschatological hope of a secular mindset, that we want to continue the species, the whole idea of surviving. But from the Christian perspective, uh, we know that this world, this universe, uh, will be changed. And this is not our final home. So, Dan, I was looking into uh, some of the numbers uh, on facts about what it would take to go to Mars to send astronauts. Yeah, what's the uh, to Mars? This is interesting. This this is so, this is what it boils down to brass tacks. Here's what we're going to need. There right? is an article I found uh, on a NASA website. It's called uh, it's something about Jamestown needs, and this is interesting because. This is, this is a NASA article. They're comparing going to another planet to what it was like when settlers came to North America and were trying to find a way to make a living. Of course. How, how, did, they, 
How did they find How a way to have that? food and water and survive? Of course, now in James, the new world, Jamestown has a few things Mars does not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's easier in Jamestown. But Mars is a whole lot harder. Right. You, you're uh, going to have to bring your oxygen with you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So I want to talk about what it's like to live in space. So um, uh, on the International Space Station, which is operating right now, Dan. Um, an astronaut uses about 1.83 pounds of food per meal each day. So somebody figured out that uh, a crew of four on a three-year Martian journey, eating only three meals each day, would need to carry more than 24,000 pounds of food. One person, 24,000 no, pounds of food. Four people. Oh, four people, 24,000 pounds. Four people on a three-year um, three Martian journey. 24,000 pounds, 24, pounds of food. Now, um, also you, on the ISS, the International Space Station, about water, they have to uh, limit water use as much as they can. Water is a heavy substance. To lug water up into space is a tough tough thing to do. So, you know, on Earth, it said that the average American uses 35 gallons of water every day, Dan. Think about that. Wow. 35 gallons a day, not, the not, average person on Earth. That's showering, drinking, cooking, yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, now, on the International Space Station, the astronauts limit their water use to about three gallons per day. Wow. So they've come up with ways of doing things that don't use much water. So, for example, when they wash themselves, they wash their body, they use some kind of a washcloth-like thing that doesn't require rinsing. So they wash them, they wipe themselves off, and then they throw away that, that thing or whatever, and uh, that way they don't use much water. Wow. So we're talking about... Already, just food and water logistically is a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> so now I took that number of three pound, three gallons of water per day, and I figured out how much would this would be over a time. So if you if you go back to thinking about four astronauts again, Dan, uh, four astronauts uh, that would take for one year, it would be thirty six thousand four hundred eighty five pounds of water um, using only three gallons of water a day. Wow. And then if, if you take that times three years, this adds up to uh, 54.7 tons of water for four astronauts for three years. Wow. 54.7 tons for four astronauts for three years. Now... <clears throat> So this is this is what the astronauts would need going to Mars. Now, on Mars, Dan, there is some water ice. There is in the pole, in the, in the northern and southern and, hemisphere. In the north and south poles, just like but there's also some ice in some places right under the surface. So some of the Mars surface is kind of like a permafrost. Okay. And if you Frozen dig down tundra. a few inches. There's sometimes ice right under the dirt. Kind of like a Lambeau Field in, <laughs> in Green Bay. <laughs> yeah, it's like dig, okay, so, so. so digging under the dirt on Mars, you could find some ice. 
and they could get some water that way. So extracting water from the planet would be a technology that you would need to uh, you would need to have uh, in order to you'd have to have some way. If you're not going to transport all that water, you're going to have some way to make it, or some way to harvest it, or some way to create it. Or right something. now, another good technology which NASA has developed is fuel cells. So what what you can do, Dan, and, and NASA did this during the Apollo years, and, and um, you have oxygen and water separated, and you when you put oxygen and water back together, they generate electricity, mm-hmm. and it generates water. So that's a pretty cool thing that's to get thing. both water and electricity out of this reaction. Yeah. Well, but the thing is... To have a fuel cell that has a tank of oxygen and a tank of water, it's kind of a dangerous yes. thing. Yeah. <laughs> and the, Apollo 13 found out it could be very dangerous. And a pure oxygen. Because in Apollo 13, one of these fuel cells blew up. Yes. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a guarantee. But that is something they c- that could be useful to astronauts on a trip to Mars is having some of these fuel cells. Um, but you still have to take about the same weight of material. So, in other words, if you took liquid water versus taking fuel cells of oxygen and hydrogen, you would end up taking about the same weight, probably. Well, there's a little uh, there's a little parenthetical insertion I'd like to add here. In just a second. You are aware of the biosphere experiment run by the University of Arizona. Yeah. Uh, built between 1987. Um, well, the University of Arizona took it over, I think. I don't think they started it. I'm not sure who started it. But between 1987 and 1991, they tried to create a self-sustaining ecosystem uh, you know, with oxygenated inside to try to sustain something like what you would require on Mars. And it failed. We couldn't even... I mean, they tried. There was, there was cheating going on. There was, you know, it was very difficult to sustain a self-sustaining eco and you know a created man-created right. ecosystem. I mean, this is in the Arizona desert. Even, even on Earth, even on Earth, where you can yeah. go to Walmart and Costco and get your food and everything. Uh, so the the logistical difficulties, I think, at least for me personally, I'm not saying let's not do it, but the logistical difficulties that we're walking through here right now, it seems to put this idea of colonizing Mars or getting to Mars beyond the reach of our generation. What do you think? I don't know. Possibly. I mean, this could be a very easily be a suicide mission. One-way trip. Uh, there have been various movies and TV shows and documentaries about what it would take to go to Mars, Dan. Like, there's a pretty good program that's a Netflix program about Mars. And this is kind of a, it's kind of a mix between a fictional story and a documentary. Mm-hmm. So part of it switches to talking to NASA people or some other scientists about this, and part of it is is an actual story of, of people that go to Mars. So they have a crew of several several people in two different uh, two different spacecraft. I think they go to Mars and they try to live on Mars. And there's various accidents that happen. Some people die in this. They have to go and find ice on Mars. They have to. They have a nuclear power generation, and they also have solar power. And they 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 try to make little like greenhouse things that where they could grow food and plants, and how difficult that is to do. 
and so there's a lot of good things about the science of how difficult it would be yes. that you can see from that program. And we that we also, uh, you and I, in preparation for this, we watched The Martian with Matt Damon, right? which was, for me, it was visually stunning. It yeah, was, it was pretty. It was pretty remarkable in terms of a eye candy. I mean, it was really cool. Uh, and of course, I think you know, aside from some of the coarse language, but uh, uh, I think the movie was well done. And it, and it, you know, of course, it's a story, but it brings up a lot of other different uh, problems that one might encounter in uh, trying to live on Mars. Right. But, I thought it was well done, I other than the bad language you're saying, but. So uh, these kind of programs, they tend to skip the trip, the problem of getting to Mars. Yeah. They tend to skip the yeah. long trip. Right. We got there. Look, yeah. we're successfully yeah, no, here. No, they're there. Now, how did they get there? <laughs> how are we going to do this? It's really a really long trip. Yeah. You know, Dan, these days, everything we do is done on a short time frame, right? Yes. And uh, when, when people were going from the eastern U.S. to the west and back in the 1800s, and being pioneers in the western U.S., it took them months to make these trips. Right, on uh, your and, family. Or, and we don't know what this is like anymore. No, we can't take uh, our horses and buggies. But it's, and, it's longer than that to go to Mars. How far yeah. is Mars from here? I know it averages in distance because it gets closer and further well, away. Well, you, you think of how far Earth is from the sun. 93 that's million That's one miles, AU. One astronomical that's unit. That's one unit. And that's 90. Mars, Mars is about half again that far. Okay, so uh, 93 million miles plus another maybe 40, 45 million miles. Yeah, something. So 130 million miles away. And uh, like the that. way the way our the or Earth and Mars orbits are, there's a period of uh, about 26 months. Every 26 months, Earth and Mars come close to each other in their orbits. Yes, that would be the and time. And so what you'd want is to take off from Earth. A little bit before that time, so that you you get to Mars at, at that closest point. Right, um, and and that's also a challenge. Just doing the the physics of uh, how the planets move. So, on average, I just looked it up. On average, the average distance between us and Mars, and then again, this is average because it changes, is about 186 million miles. Yeah. On average, sometimes it's closer, sometimes it's farther away, uh, because of its elliptical orbit. Uh, so we're talking about a journey of a full full spacecraft, a journey of... Now, the three years, is that round trip or just one way? I think that's round trip. Okay, so you're talking about a year, year so and I a half. So I think it would take most of a year to get there. Okay. and Or maybe more, depending on how fast it is, the spacecraft. I don't know how that you would work You basically got to take a, a bus or a semi-tractor trailer full of food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and water. And, uh, and you know, it's it's... It's an incredibly logistically challenging um, opportunity. And I'm not saying that it's so hard we shouldn't do it. It's just ultimately what is the final purpose in all of that. I'm for it for exploration purposes, to, to, right. to, to look at it from the perspective of exploring the glory of God. It's a mission. Yes. And in terms of a mission, whether you're a missionary or a missionary to space, uh, it's going to be dangerous. It may cost your life uh, either way. Um, but I think in the end, from a biblical perspective, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. There are many Christians in the aerospace industry who are excited and eager to explore the universe because they know it is created by God. That is what largely inspired science in the, in the 17th century. Absolutely. You know, Kepler's love of 
of the heavens and his love of Christ, you know, combined, gave us the three laws of planetary motion, you know? Right. So if you're an adventurous Christian who wants to maybe be the first brave person to go to Mars, or if you want to build rockets or whatever, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor because you're helping people understand what God has created. Yeah, if if, if, uh, Johan Kepler or Isaac Newton were here today... I think they would be all for exploring the solar system. I think they but but you know, to doing this for men to go to these planets is a tough thing and it's dangerous. It is. And it takes a lot of supplies. Um, and it's and you can't you can't just run to the store when you're on the Martian terrain. That's right. Uh, you're gonna have a resupply chain. It's gonna take quite a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was. The idea that if, if we, let's say we have something like Mars all set up, you would actually probably have to have a secondary or maybe even a third rocket on the pad uh, ready to go for backup, for rescue, for additional supplies. Uh, yes, but uh, I think however they make a spacecraft to go to Mars, they would have to haul a lot of material up into space to that spacecraft. Yeah. And then that... That spacecraft would have to be really large. Absolutely. Really large to hold all the water and food. It, you have to hold water and food. Uh, even if they got some ice on Mars, they would still have to haul a lot of water. Absolutely. Somehow. Absolutely. All right. Well, we have had a very brief, and certainly not an exhaustive look, at how space exploration and the Christian faith can be conceived together. And not mutually exclusive. Um, what else do you want to add to this before we wrap it up here? Well, I'm all for exploration of our solar system, and uh, I'm kind of doubtful that we'll ever send human beings to other stars, though, Dan. Yeah, that's uh, that's, that's the another another massive scale. The closest star to us is uh, Proxima Centauri, and that's about four four or five light years away. And when you put a light year at six trillion miles, more or less, yeah, that's twenty-four trillion miles. I saw somewhere that the fastest spacecraft that we've ever made is a spacecraft called Helios Two, which was traveling at a speed of two hundred and forty thousand kilometers per hour. Wow! <laughs> and at that speed, it could orbit the Earth in ten minutes. Well, and just to give you a now that at that speed. Dan. That's amazing. To go to Proxima Centauri would take 19,000 years. Yeah. No, that's not going to happen. Uh, not in, we would, <laughs> Even if you put somebody on a ship that would go that way by the time they get there, yeah. if they got there, there would so, be a, it would be a, so, you an know, ossuary of bones. Dan, <laughs> right. So, Dan, I've been a science fiction fan for years, but you need to understand, real science is a whole different thing than science fiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's completely different. Well... To give you a to give our listeners a perspective, it was just this year, just in the last year or two. In fact, just this year, I think it was Voyager one or Voyager two. One of them just reached the outer edge of our solar system. Yeah, these were launched in 1977. Yeah, so do the math: 23 years to 2000, and another 20. So 43 years for these Voyager spacecraft just to get to the edge of our solar system. Right. Right? So you basically have to put an infant on a rocket, 
to get him by the time he's yeah, our, 43. Our, our sun's magnetic field makes a kind of a bow shock yes. around the whole solar system. And it's out there, way out in space, and Voyager just... Just not long ago, crossed the boundary. So the sun is the sun is uh, exuding all of this air and magnetic force, yeah, and, and uh, kind of like a little insular bubble, if yeah, you will. Right. And Voyager kind of went through that and hit what they call interstellar space. And winds and magnetisms from other other worlds have have uh, it's still uh, sending signals back to Earth, which is amazing. Um, but that was uh, over forty years ago, and just to get to the edge of our solar system. And who knows what uh, what that may continue to discover? But on that on that Voyager one is that golden record, right? With all the music that right. Carl Sagan put together, it was yeah. it was a phonograph record of gold. Uh, hopefully, advanced civilizations will have a turntable. <laughs> right. So I I think we should keep our ultimate hope in uh, in the God and what you know. I think history is is shorter than people realize. Um, and, uh, and that our future as hu- human beings may be shorter than people realize, too. But uh, So I don't think our hope is to go out into space. I think it's that we need to get right with God here. And, and whenever we explore, keep in mind that our hope is really not in this life, but in what God is doing in the future. Right. And I, I, I would add this, that you just look at the expenditures uh, in costs. And they get into the millions and then, of course, the billions and translate it into U.S. dollars. Right. Um, you're looking at billions of dollars of an investment. But you think, I think that attests to what the Bible says, one aspect of, of God's glory. It has inestimable value that we're willing to spend this kind of money to investigate the universe speaks volumes about the kind of what how we perceive the universe to be it's amazing it's mysterious it's powerful it's unknown it draws our attention heavenward we look up we wonder what it is and we're willing to spend almost an endless amount of money just to know it a little better right and i think that science actually confirms a, a biblical worldview dan if you really dig into it. It reveals the majesty of the Creator. Now, of course, when we talk about, you know, the Bible doesn't need the affirmation of modern science no. to prove that God exists. We're not saying that. Right. But what we are saying is that through a thorough investigation of the universe, we can affirm the amazing attributes, the God's invisible attributes that are that permeate everything that he has made. Right. Uh, you talk about, uh, when you read about secular cosmologies, one thing that comes up all the time is this concept of eternity. If there is no God, then what do you need to have a universe like ours? You need to have something pre-existing, something eternal, something that's always been here. Right. And so even in the fabric and the vocabulary of secular science, the idea of a singularity of laws, of missions, uh, of expenditures, all of it still resonates with the glory of God. He's not just an agent. He's not just a cause. Uh, the heavens are an expression of his relational glory, the, the, his, his Trinitarian relational glory. The heavens are a gift. It shows his infinite nature. It shows his infinite, eternal nature, Godhead, power, yeah. you name it. And so when you build a tower into the heavens, there's no way your name <laughs> is going to be above the name who created all of it, right? Jesus is the name above all names. Right, and the uh, sending men into space is always 
uh, highlighted our own limitations in a lot of ways. That's right. Yeah. You know? No, we, we, we want to encounter the glory, but we also uh, encounter our own finite limitations as right. well. Like Moses. Right. Moses reminds me of an astronaut in some sense. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. <laughs> and yeah. God's like, you can't see my face yes. and live. That's right. And I think a lot of our modern space exploration is kind of that way. You know, show me your glory. But we can see the tangible things that God made. That's right. That's right. And he, that's what I like. And he puts us, and I like what he does with Moses. He puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and covers him with his hand. Right. And I think that's what earth is. He yeah. is, we are all in the cleft of a rock he has made. Yes. He has covered us with his hand so that we may observe his backside. Absolutely. <laughs> the backside being <laughs> his goodness, his, his goodness in creation, right. his, his goodness throughout the world, his goodness to you and me. Yes. Uh, you know, slow and compassionate, long-suffering. You know, he declares all these things to Moses, and he passes by, and, and, it, and Moses gets to see some of this, but not the deadly part, right? And yes. So, so we're all like, well, show us your glory, Lord, but we don't really know what we're asking. In some right. sense, we got to put on the the priestly garments. We got to put on the astronaut garb right. if we're going to go out and counter the the, the glory right. of God. Right? Yeah. yeah. All right, Wayne. I think we've covered. We we certainly haven't been exhaustive about this. There's so much more we could talk about about space exploration, but we affirm it in some sense. We think it reveals the glory of God. We we're not condemning it, but we think that uh, you know, without a healthy picture of our own limitations. It, it becomes something that that is a little a little bit more than just wanting to learn about the universe. It becomes wanting to make a name for ourselves in the heavens, right? And the heavens are not finally all about us, but about the one who created. About them. the one who made it, it's yeah. Jesus. All right, Wayne. This has been a fantastic episode. Any closing thoughts for you? Uh, that's about it, I think. Um, all right. We will see you next time on Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Hello, this is Wayne with the Good Heavens Podcast. I'd like to add a little more about the problem of radiation exposure to astronauts in space and on Mars. This is an important problem to solve if we ever send astronauts to Mars. While we're on Earth, we are protected by Earth's atmosphere and Earth's magnetic field. The International Space Station also receives a lot of protection from Earth's magnetic field. But during the trip to Mars, while living on the surface of Mars, astronauts would be exposed to significantly more radiation than if they were on Earth. The radiation comes from two sources. Uh, First is solar radiation, but that radiation is relatively easy to shield against. Uh, Just the spacecraft would shield against that. Uh, The other form of radiation is from galactic cosmic rays. These are high-speed subatomic particles that come from the galaxy and even from outside our galaxy to some degree. So these cosmic rays are more dangerous. Um, NASA has been doing research for some time now on methods of protecting astronauts from radiation. The Mars Curiosity rover, which has been on Mars, has been measuring radiation on Mars for some time now. So they do know something about this. Um, 
There was one study of the risk to astronauts uh, published in Science in January 2014. It found that for a human mission to Mars, if there was a total of 360 days of exposure in space for the trip to Mars and back, plus 500 days of living on Mars, the astronauts would be exposed to a total amount of radiation that is one sievert. Now, a sievert is a a physics unit for measuring radiation. This is not too bad of a dose, but from the study it says uh, it would increase the odds of getting a fatal cancer by 5% over the astronaut's lifetime. But keep in mind there are ways of reducing this amount of exposure. So how the spacecraft on Mars habitat is made to provide some shielding, living underground on Mars might be one good idea perhaps. But uh, at any rate, there's a need to find solutions to the radiation problem because radiation over time can have a variety of negative effects. So let's hope that scientists find some good solutions to radiation. Thanks for listening.